Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Luke 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. One, <laughs> one of four gospel accounts we have about the life of Jesus. So again, that's Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses today. When he had concluded saying this, when he included hmm, saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. The centur- a centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith, even in Israel. Then those who had been sent returned to the house. They found the servant in good health. God bless the reading of his word. Uh, Please be seated. I was waiting at school the other day to pick up my kids, standing at the bike racks with the other parents when I saw a little kid, still too young for kindergarten, there with his mom to pick up an older sibling. And I saw this kid look over and notice one particular bicycle, and he ran over to it, touching it, and he was just gushing over this bike to his mom. And I don't speak Spanish, but it was clear what had caught his attention. The reason the bike was so special is because it was a Spider-Man bike. He was excited because he loved Spider-Man. And I know another kid, a Chinese kid in Hong Kong, who had a Spider-Man costume. He refused to take off. His parents eventually had to buy him more Spider-Man clothes so he would have clean ones to wear while the others were in the wash. For a while, he wore Spider-Man costumes 24-7. And there are kids right down the hall in our Sunday school class who I know love Spider-Man as well. What is it about Spider-Man that's so attractive that kids from all over the world love him? Well, he's not just Spider-Man. He's the amazing Spider-Man. He's amazing because he can do amazing things. He can shoot webs from his wrists and swing on them. He has super strength and super agility. And it's surprising. Peter Parker's not big. He's not a person who we would expect to defeat bad guys, yet he does. He's able to do things outside of what we would expect. And that's amazing. Things are amazing because they're surprising. And they sort of leave us in awe a little bit. 
And there are people in real life who amaze, who amaze us also, aren't there? Think of LeBron with talent that just seems so far beyond what we would expect from a regular person. It's awe-inspiring. Think of Beyonce, whose music talent surpasses most of her peers. These are amazing people, and they inspire awe. But of course, the most amazing person who's ever lived is Jesus. Jesus is actually more amazing than LeBron or Beyonce. Jesus actually created the world. We know from John 1 and from Hebrews 1 that all things were created through Christ. So yeah, LeBron may be a great athlete, but every muscle and ligament and tendon in his body was created by Jesus. And there's some amazing physics involved with hitting a three-point shot. But physics itself was created by Jesus. And Beyonce may be the most talented musician you've ever seen, but music itself was created by Jesus. Jesus is the most amazing man who's ever lived. And the scriptures back me up on this, don't they? People were amazed when the shepherds told them about Jesus' birth. When Jesus was 12, the teachers in the temple were astounded at his understand, understanding. Crowds were amazed at his miracles. They were amazed at his teaching. The disciples were amazed when he calmed the storm. They were amazed when they found him talking to a Samaritan woman. Pilate was amazed because Jesus didn't try to defend himself against his accusers. Jesus is truly the most amazing person who's ever lived. Throughout the four Gospels, we see that Jesus is amazing. But there are only two occasions when we are told that Jesus himself was amazed. Only twice. And one of those is in our passage today. Jesus was amazed at this centurion. Jesus was amazed at his faith. Now, this should get us to take notice. What is it about this man's faith that could amaze the most amazing man who's ever lived. That's what we want to look at today. And we see this amazement in verse 9, where we read, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith, even in Israel. So from Jesus' words here, we see two aspects that are contributing to Jesus' amazement. The faith that he finds and the unexpected place where he finds it. So let's look at both of these things. The faith Jesus finds and the unexpected place he finds it. Okay, so what is this faith that Jesus finds? Let's jump into the passage. So Jesus goes to Capernaum, and if you read back in Luke, this isn't the first time he's been there. So now in chapter 7, Jesus is back in town, and people know about him. This isn't a regular preacher. This guy teaches with authority. He commands demons with authority. He heals the sick with authority. Luke has been emphasizing his authority. And one of the people who's heard about this guy is the local centurion. Now, a centurion is a military officer who would have around 100 soldiers under his command, maybe a few less than that. They were usually career soldiers responsible for commanding, inspecting, disciplining the soldiers under them. Now, remember, this guy represents the power of Rome here. He's a foreigner in charge of keeping the peace, probably for enforcing tax collection. You can see how someone like this might not be very popular. 
Yet, when he asks for help, the Jewish elders help him. They go on his behalf and ask Jesus to come and help. And our Lord, in his great compassion, agrees to go. But even before, but even before he gets there, the centurion sends some friends, and they urge Jesus not to come at all. And through these messengers, the centurion gives a two-part reason. First, because he's not worthy to have Jesus come into his home. It shows amazing humility. But it's the second reason why he urges Jesus not to come that I want to look at here. Look at verse 7. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, this is amazing. Jesus has healed people already and amazed and astounded people in Capernaum. But the centurion can see that Jesus' power is even greater than what he's already shown. He believes that Jesus can do things that are even more amazing. And he explains why in verse 8. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. If there's anybody who understands authority, it's people in the military. When your commanding officer tells you to do something, you do it. Not following orders is the end of your career in the military, maybe the end of your freedom, or even your life. Yeah. <laughs> to a military man, words have authority. The centurion knows authority. He knows what it is and how it works. And when he sees Jesus, he sees authority. This is game recognizes game. <laughs> this is like when... This is like when Mozart hears 17-year-old Beethoven and realizes what this kid is going to become. It's like that. But it's also different because we can see from the centurion's humility that he sees Jesus' authority as greater than his own. He's recognizing that Jesus has authority on a whole nother level. The centurion recognized Jesus' authority. We today living on the other side of the cross, who have the full scriptures, we also need to recognize his authority. But we also need to understand that his authority is not just over all creation generically, but it is over you and me. We need to recognize and submit to Christ's authority. Now let's talk about authority for a bit. Authority is something we often distrust. We think of authority as a concept negatively. In our culture, we admire people who stand up to authority. The word rebel has an almost romantic connotation, like in Star Wars, right? Rebellion is cool. Authority is the opposite of freedom, and everyone wants freedom. So we don't like authority. Something in our hearts wants to rebel. And let's be honest, we've seen people with authority abuse their authority. Human authority is tainted with sin. When we learn about government here in the U.S., we learn about checks and balances. The Constitution of our country is designed to make sure no one person, even the president, gets too much authority because authority gets abused. And you may have had personal experience with abusive authority, maybe civil authorities, or at work, or from teachers, or parents, 
And I'm a parent with authority over my family, and I mess up all the time because I'm sinful. And so we can come to resent authority, not in a romantic, rebel-without-a-cause way, but because it has hurt us. But brothers and sisters, the problem isn't authority. The problem is sin. So when we think about Christ and his authority over us, we need to remember that his authority has no sin. It will never be abusive. And in Christ's case, the opposite of authority is not freedom. The opposite of authority is slavery. Slavery to sin, which Christ has delivered us from. So when you take Christ as your savior, you take him also as your Lord, who you submit to. Now that might sound a little abstract, okay? Christ is my authority, but he's up at God's right hand. How do I submit to him exactly? Well, he's given us scripture, and that has authority. The Bible is our authority because it's a book about Christ, which God has given us to point us to Christ. If you accept Christ as Lord, if you accept his authority, you accept scripture as that authority. He's also given us the church. When you accept the authority of Christ, you accept the authority of the church where you're a member. Now, when I say church authority, that makes some of us bristle because the church is full of sinful people. And sometimes we hear examples of spiritual abuse. So let's be clear, the authority of church is under the authority of Christ and under the authority of scriptures. The authority of church is to apply the word of God. It doesn't have the authority to make up new rules or laws outside of scripture. It's limited to what scripture teaches us. And the church is authorized to discipline people. But this doesn't mean issuing fines or putting people in jail or any kind of civil punishment. It does have the authority, though, actually the duty to call out church members when they choose to live contrary to scripture, out of love for them and the authority to remove people from the church out of love for them and out of a desire to protect the church. You know, I was out at the club the other day, Sam's Club. <laughs> it's my favorite place. Okay. I was out at Sam's Club the other day and after waiting in line for a really, really long time, I was next in line to get gas. And the lady in front of me had the gas going on automatic, and she was on her phone. And for some reason, the automatic shutoff wasn't working correctly. And when her car gas tank was full, it started flowing down the side of the car and pooling on the ground. Obviously, there's a danger there, gas pouring out all over the place. Nobody wants to die in Sam's Club parking lot while watching TikTok. <laughs> now, seeing the situation, seeing a danger, seeing gas gushing out and a person completely unaware of it, what should I do? Should I say something? I don't want to interrupt her. I don't want her to feel like I'm mansplaining how to get gas or anything like that. Yet, 
the most loving thing I can do in this situation is yell, excuse me, ma'am, your tank is overflowing. If you continue on this path, you are putting yourself in great danger. This is the authority of the church. When you're a member of a church, you're accepting that if you're living contrary to scripture, they're going to say something. If they don't say something, they are not loving you. Now again, we have examples of spiritual abuse in churches. These things should always be done with the goal of restoration, never to punish. They should always be done on the basis of scripture alone. They should always be done in love, patience, and humility. Like the centurion, we need to recognize the authority of Christ. When we choose to follow him, we're making him our Lord and submitting to the authority of the scriptures God gave us and at the church with which Christ founded. So the centurion's faith is amazing because it recognizes Christ's authority. But as we saw in verse 9, when Jesus says, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel, he's amazed both by the faith he found and by where he found it. So let's talk about that now. Where did Jesus find this faith, and why was that amazing? Well, it says he found faith he couldn't find in Israel. He's surprised because the man who's exhibiting this ordinary faith, this extraordinary faith, is a Gentile. Now, remember I said there were only two times in the Gospels where Jesus was amazed. One of them is in this story. The only other time Jesus was amazed is in Mark 6, when Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. There, the Jewish people doubt him, and Mark tells us they were offended by him. And Mark 6, 6 says that he was amazed at their unbelief. In Luke 7, Jesus is amazed by the Gentiles' faith. But in Mark 6, Jesus is amazed by the Jewish people's lack of faith. So there is a shift going on in Luke and Acts. The boundary that set Gentiles outside of God's people and Jews inside, that boundary is starting to crack. And of course, later in the book of Acts, we see that boundary come crashing down. But at this point, people don't get it. The boundary still seems fully up. Peter himself doesn't get it until Acts 10. That's part of what makes the centurion's faith so amazing. His faith anticipates what's coming. The centurion was interested in Jewish people and their religion, wasn't he? He made friends with them and built them a synagogue. He saw something there. Like the Queen of Sheba that we read about in 1 Kings 10, a Gentile who saw something in the Jewish faith had their curiosity aroused. The centurion was looking for truth, and he recognized something in the Jewish God that made him interested. Now, we don't know about the centurion's ethnicity. We don't know his background, but we do know that God was a God of the Jews, and the centurion wasn't a Jew. He had to cross ethnic boundaries to find God. Ethnic boundaries didn't stop him from seeking what he was looking for. Brothers and sisters, if this man was willing to cross boundaries in order to look for truth, shouldn't we who know truth be willing to cross boundaries to share it with others, 
to cross boundaries of race and class and social stat status, ethnic boundaries, social boundaries, national boundaries. Let me tell you about a couple people who did. William Carey was a shoemaker in England in the late 1700s, didn't have much formal education, but he had a gift for languages. And eventually, he went to India and ended up translating the Bible into Hindi and several other languages that today are spoken by almost a billion people. He was not afraid to cross boundaries, and because of that, so many people can know about what Christ has done for them. Or let me tell you about a lady from the early 1800s. You know, back in those days, overseas mission work was considered quite dangerous. Really, it was just for men or married couples, but never for single women. The first single woman from America to go overseas as a missionary was a woman named Betsy Stockton. Anybody know that name? She was a black woman, born a slave. Later in life, she was able to get her freedom. She used that freedom to spend five months on a boat to go tell the people of Hawaii about Jesus. She started a school there. This was long before Hawaii was part of the U.S. She later moved to Canada, where she started a school for Native Americans. She was not afraid to cross boundaries. Of course, there are still missionaries today. Many U.S. churches send out missionaries to tell people about Jesus, but so do churches in many other countries. South Korea is known for sending a lot of missionaries. Missionaries are coming out of South America, Europe, Africa as well. And do you know where the number one country is that missionaries around the world are sent to to share the gospel? What heathen nation <laughs> receives the most missionaries? It's the US. <laughs> Going overseas is a great boundary to cross, but there are so many unreached people right here in the US. In Orlando, you don't have to cross the street to cross a boundary. But how do we do this? What does this look like practically? Let's look at the Bible. Let's look back at the centurion. What did he do that made him successful at crossing boundaries? I see four things. First of all, look at verse 5, where the elders are lobbying on his behalf. And they tell Jesus, he loves our nation. That's the first thing we see the centurion doing to cross boundaries. We see him loving people on the other side of the boundary. It's a good place for us to start as well. You know what love looks like, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Loving like this is tough, even when we're not crossing boundaries. But this is what we're called to, brothers and sisters. Second, the centurion loved them, but we see also in verse 5, the elders say, he built us a synagogue. Now, centurions got paid fairly well. They made quite a bit more than the average soldier. But for him to build a synagogue for them was extravagant generosity. We can love across boundaries, but we can also give 
across boundaries. We can be generous with our time, our talents, our money, our compliments, our respect, our hospitality. Third, we already saw how the centurion was humble. The Jewish elders who were vouching for him in verse 4 say, he is worthy. But the centurion himself says, I am not worthy. Humility goes a long way in crossing boundaries, doesn't it? The centurion could certainly boast he had the power of Rome behind him. Yet we see humility. Fourth, he understood their culture. Do you see where the centurion in verse 6 discourages Jesus from even coming? It shows his faith, right? Because he knows Jesus can heal with a word from across town. But it also shows that the centurion knows something about the culture. Jewish people of that time normally would not want to enter the home of a Gentile because it would make them ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't want to touch a sick person because, again, it would make them unclean. Now, being unclean wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't sinful to be unclean. But you did have to go do some special washings or something like that, depending on the exact uh, nature of the uncleanness. It's inconvenient and troublesome to make yourself unclean. So, this, so when the centurion says, don't trouble yourself, since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, he's saying, don't trouble yourself by becoming unclean. The centurion understood something about Jewish culture. He was able to cross boundaries because he'd made an effort to understand the people on the other side of the boundary. Now, understanding people unlike ourselves can be challenging. Often the ideas we have about others come from Hollywood movies or stories we hear or the source of all knowledge, the internet. And often in those places, you don't actually learn anything. You just get your stereotypes reinforced. A better strategy is interacting with people, learning from people, doing life with people, with love, generosity, and humility. Now I know this all is good advice about crossing boundaries, and I know, but I know also that some boundaries seem very large, impossible to cross. But there is no boundary on this earth between any two people that would be bigger than the boundary between you and God because of your sin. No boundary. The boundary between God and us was uncrossable. There's no way we could ever reach him. There's no way we could ever experience his love and goodness. Because of that boundary, we could never go to God. So God came to us. He came to us in the form of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The centurion didn't want to trouble Jesus by making him unclean, but he didn't realize that Jesus already made himself unclean just by stepping down into this dirty, wicked world, coming from the throne room of God, Christ, the creator of the world, born in a stable, suffering, being mocked, being shamed, being unjustly condemned in an unjust trial, crucified, dying, taking your sin and my sin upon himself. He broke down that boundary that separated us from God. Ephesians 1.7 tells us, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. By his blood, our trespasses have been forgiven and the uncrossable boundary can now be crossed. But there's more. His blood doesn't just allow us to cross that boundary to get to God. It also allows us to cross boundaries that exist between us and other groups of people here on this earth. Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Christ doesn't just cross boundaries. Christ destroys boundaries. Let me conclude. From this centurion, this character whose faith amazed Jesus, we see several amazing things. We see that he recognized Jesus' authority, and we see that he was crossing boundaries. Now, it may seem like these two points are interesting and true, but are they related? Is there a relationship between Jesus' authority and crossing boundaries with the good news of the gospel? Probably many of you here know the passage I'm thinking of. It's Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We have confidence in Jesus' authority, his authority over us, his authority over all people, all nations. It inspires us to tell, to tell all the nations about the wonderful things he has done. There is no people group on this planet that he doesn't care about. No tribe or tongue that won't be represented in heaven. And he asks us to bring them this news. And if that sounds hard, if it sounds hard to cross boundaries with his love, remember the boundaries that, cross, that Christ crossed for us. And remember that he leaves us with a promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.